is that art is taking philosophy, and instead of entering through the front of your brain, it's entering through the back door. And, uh, and that art enters in and it changes the way that we think, it affects the way that we feel and what we believe to be good and bad, true or false, right? And that's true with, uh, with paintings, it's true uh, with any form of art, that, that is still true. And so what we've been actually looking at over the last couple of weeks is we've been looking particularly at songs and music. And uh, in, in some respect, that's kind of a low-hanging fruit to take a look at, at different songs and different music in our culture and to see, you know, what those things are communicating uh, to be, again, true or false, good or bad, right or wrong, and, uh, and to see why it is that these certain songs really resonate with us, particularly songs, we're looking at songs that aren't explicitly Christian by any means. And so a couple of weeks ago, we did the, so- the song Shame by the Avett Brothers, and uh, what we found out is that shame, this idea that, uh, that, that we have this painful emotion of awareness that we don't measure up to some sort of uh, standard that exists out there, that that painful emotion is something that resonates very deeply with every single one of us. We took a look at how uh, in uh, Genesis, the first thing that happened after the fall was not that Adam and Eve died, but the first thing that happened is that they were aware that they were naked, right? And they they attempted to cover themselves with leaves, and then they hid because they had this painful awareness that something was wrong with them, that something didn't measure up. And guess what? The reality is that, uh, that we actually don't measure up in all sorts of ways, but there's good news that's actually attached to that. Uh, then last week, we took a look at the Rolling Stones song, You Can't Always Get What You Want. And, uh, and again, part of the reason we took a look at that song is because most people, if not all people, have this sneaking suspicion that their lives aren't meaningless and that the events in their lives um, are actually more than just simply the product of chance. And that, that something, whether it's you know, fate or, uh, or a personal being such as God, is actually using the events of their lives very intentionally and bringing them to a very intentional culmination. Of course, what we see in Romans 8.28 is that that actually is true, that, that God uses all of the things that happens in our lives, both good and bad, and that he uses them in order to create something beautiful and wonderful in our lives, but also he uses them uh, to accomplish his glory. So there's good news to be found in that. Today we're going to be looking at another song, which um, I'll introduce really quickly, but uh, it's going to be uh, the song, it's a song by Johnny Cash. He actually covered it. It's an older song, but it's called Run On or God's Going to Cut You Down. And again, there's going to be a theme that, that uh, really comes out of this song, which some of us are going to be comfortable with and some of us are going to be a little less comfortable with. But before we jump into this next song, I'm going to take a moment and I'm going to pray that God would just bless us with his presence. Um, let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. I thank you for these people. I thank you that, um, you know, as last week we learned, um, that we're not in this room by chance. It's not fate, um, but rather we're in this room because um, you are orchestrating uh, the events of our lives, uh, particularly for those of us who love you and are called according uh, to your purposes, Father, that you, you are using the events of our lives uh, for good. And uh, that that as a result, we are here this morning and that you have something to communicate to us or you have some experience that you want us uh, to be involved in. Father, whatever it is, that's your uh, territory. Uh, I would simply ask that your presence would be here in our midst and uh, that those of us that are here this morning would have an encounter with you, the living God. And Father, I would ask that we wouldn't be able to leave this place this morning 
without truly having experienced you. Father, please do something amazing in us. And Father, I pray that then you would do something amazing through us. It's in your son Jesus' name that we pray all these things. Amen. six o'clock today, you're going to be humming something, and you're going to be like, what am I humming? And you're going to be like, oh, I'm humming that song, right? God's going to cut you down. Anyway, it's funny, uh, you know, it's funny, I, again, I've told you guys this before, but I played soccer for years and years and years, you know, and when I was younger, like in my younger, less mature, less holy days, if I was out on the hot soccer field, 
you know, I might have something, some song running through my brain, and it might have been like an ACDC song, just to be very honest with you, or some other like horrible hard rock song or something. And then, um, you know, it's funny, after we had kids, there was one time where, where we were, Chris and I were playing soccer somewhere, and I was humming some song in my head, and, and, uh, and I was like, what is that song I'm humming? And it was The Rainbow Connection by Kermit the Frog. <laughs> and I thought... I was like, wow, it's amazing how having children really changes your internal playlist. Anyway, so whatever. So uh, thank you, David, and thank you guys for being willing to play that. Um, you know, that's, an, that's a really amazing song. And again, I'm not going to give you the whole history, but that's a song that's been covered and covered and covered again. And the most famous cover is actually the one that David just did, which is uh, by Johnny Cash, right? And it was released uh, posthumously uh, on an album. And in 2008, that song and the video that was associated with it actually won a Grammy. So it was very, very popular. Moby, who is this sort of uh, electronic uh, sort of DJ type guy, has also covered it. It's been covered time and time again. And in the video that I mentioned that won the Grammy, it's interesting. There are 60 some odd different uh, famous people in the video. I'm not going to read all of them, but I'll read some of them, and, and I'll do it for a purpose. But in the video uh, are people like Bono, Iggy Pop, David Allen Coe, Kanye West, Flea of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Kid Rock, and Jay-Z. And that's just to name a few. I mean, there's, again, 60-some-odd people that are all super recognizable that are in this song. And what's interesting is there's some reason why these musicians said yes to this particular video of this particular song, right? And it's because, again, this idea resonates with something within us. Something within us takes a look at the theme of this song and, to some degree, Johnny Cash and his life and resonates with us, and we give it some credibility, some validity, because it plucks a string that's in our heart. Now, here's the theme of the song, is if you didn't know this already, I'll point it out. But the basic theme of this song is that God judges bad people, right? That there is a God, and that this God judges bad people, in particular the rambler, the backbiter, the midnight rider, the long-tongued liar. The list goes on and on. Again, God judges liars, troublemakers, gossips, slanderers, and the violent. That's the theme of that song. Now, here's the interesting thing. It's interesting that all those famous people decided to be in that video, right? And part of what's interesting is this idea of judgment is not one that we are very comfortable with in our culture. So it's my guess that those people said yes to that song to, as a tribute to Johnny Cash, but also because this idea of judgment probably in their minds is this sort of archaic piece of Americana, right? And so it's not anything that they probably really, or very few of them actually believe in it, so much as it's just sort of this quaint idea from a period of American history that's long since gone. Because the truth is that as modern Westerners living in America who are educated, man, we are so uncomfortable with the idea of a God who judges, right? I mean, we are really, really uncomfortable with this idea. I would even go so far as to say it's not only an uncomfortable idea for us, but I would say that it's an offensive idea for us, that we're offended by the idea or the concept of a God who judges immoral behavior. Even if we believe the behavior is bad, that if we believe in that God, it's kind of offensive. And, and, it, and at best, maybe it's uncomfortable. Now, let me read a couple things really quickly that I think hearken to this a bit. You're familiar with Arthur Miller, the great playwright who was also married to Marilyn Monroe. Uh, brilliant, brilliant man. Here's a picture of him here. Though his glasses aren't the coolest in the world, he is an amazing playwright and a brilliant thinker. 
And uh, in one of his plays called After the Fall, uh, there's a character in the play whose name is Quentin. Most uh, people who study literature said the Quentin character in After the Fall is really a projection of Arthur Miller into this play. But listen to one of the quotes from Quentin, and it'll deal with this idea of a God who judges very quickly. He says this, you know, this is the Quentin character in the play, you know, more and more, I think that for many years I looked at life like a case at law, a series of proofs. When you're young, you prove how brave you are or smart. Then what a good lover, then a good father, finally how wise or powerful or whatever. But underlying it all, I see now that there was a presumption that I was moving on an upward path towards some elevation where, God knows what, I would be justified or even condemned, a verdict anyway, I think now that my disaster really began when I looked up one day and the bench was empty, right? All of a sudden, there's no judge. He goes on to say, no judge in sight. All that, reminded, or all that remained was this endless argument with oneself, this pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench, which, of course, is another way of saying despair. In other words, what Arthur Miller is saying, he's saying, We're created as human beings to have this idea of a standard. We have a standard of aesthetics. We have a standard of morality. We have a standard of ethics and right and wrong and good and bad and truth and false. And we're constantly living our lives and we're aware of this standard. And if we're a a good person, hopefully we're actually aspiring higher and higher up that chain until there's some verdict that will be given. And what Arthur Miller here is saying is, he said, there was at some point in time where I changed my belief system and I thought, what if there's no judge? What if there's no God that actually cares about right and wrong, good and bad? And what he is saying as a, as a brilliant thinker is he's saying, if that's the case, then the only thing that's left is despair because it's all meaningless. It's all meaningless. The love that you have for your wife, that's not love. It's just some sort of chemical reaction in your heart. You know, the the fact that you would throw yourself in front of a a train to protect your children, that's not love. All that is is sort of this evolutionary sort of, you know, chemical reaction that wants you to protect your DNA in those children. The response of beauty to a painting, that's not really some sort of higher feeling. That's, again, that's just, you know, you're just a raccoon that's impressed by some shiny little glittery object. That's all you are. And what he's basically saying is if there's no God, if there's not a judge who evaluates right and wrong, good and bad truth and false, then the only appropriate response is despair. Does that make sense? Just go ahead and despair. This idea of God is, it's just ridiculous. Go ahead and give up and just live life, do whatever makes you happy. That's one answer, right? If there isn't a God, there's only despair. There's another answer or another argument along this line. There's a man named Miroslav Volf who is a Yale theology professor. He grew up in uh, what was Yugoslavia, what is now Croatia. And uh, again, that was a socialist state at that point in time, governed by you know, Marxist ideals. Uh, Christians were unwelcome there. His father actually was a pastor and underwent persecution. Of course, during all the, you know, the political turmoil that existed there, there, were, there was tons of suffering. There was tons of killing. There was tons of evil that went on there. And uh, Miroslav Volf, in a book uh, called Exclusion and Embrace, has the following quote. It is long. I will break it up a little bit uh, to address certain things he's talking about. Uh, but stick with me, if you will. He says this. He says, one could object that it is not worthy of God to wield the sword. 
is God, not love, long-suffering and all-powerful love. A counter-question could go something like this. Is it not a bit too arrogant to presume that all our contemporary sensibilities about what is compatible with God's love are so much healthier than those of the people of God throughout the whole history of Judaism and Christianity. In other words, what he's saying there is he's saying, look, we're this little blip on the radar in terms of our particular perspective on God in the West. And we think this idea of a, you know, of a judgmental God is just so offensive. But what he's saying is, look at the history of Judaism and Christianity. And he might even have added to it, you know, Islam and all these other religions. And what he's basically saying, isn't it really kind of arrogant of us to think that our view of God trumps all those other people's views of God? That's what he's essentially arguing. He goes on to say, most people who insist on God's nonviolence cannot resist using violence themselves or tacitly sanctioning its use by others. In other words, what he's saying is, we in the West, and he's including himself in the West, he's like, you know, we're so offended by this idea of a God who is judgmental. But at the same time, you know, we uh, support wars that are all over the world. We support the use of violence. We support all sorts of different ways in which violence is manifest. He goes on to say, we deem the talk of God's judgment irreverent, but think nothing of entrusting judgment into human hands, persuaded presumably that this is less dangerous and more humane than to believe in a God who judges. Does that make sense? Like, we entrust judgment into human hands. We don't have any problem with that. Why all of a sudden do we have a problem with believing in a God who actually would do the same? That we should bring down the powerful from their thrones seems responsible. That God should do the same as the song of that revolutionary virgin explicitly states seems crude. He goes on to say, and so violence thrives, secretly nourished by belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. Now, again, what he's doing here is he's saying, growing up in Yugoslavia, what is now Croatia, he said, in a world that got rid of God, that threw God out, that threw the baby out with the bathwater, all of a sudden violence thrived because no longer was there a God who actually cared about what you did or how you lived your life. No longer was there, there was a God who, who was a judge, right? That's what atheism ultimately yields is a, hey, if it's just survival of the fittest, then go for it and get away with whatever you can get away with. He says violence thrives, secretly nourished by a belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. Last section of this quote, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be, be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. To the person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you're delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is where a paper that underlies this chapter was originally delivered. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned, then leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. The topic of the lecture, a Christian attitude toward violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. And as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal Western mind. See that? I mean, it's just really kind of funny. I mean, what, what essentially he's saying is he gives this long list 
of, uh, of different reasons why it absolutely makes all the sense in the world to not only believe in the presence of a judging God, but to hope there is a God who actually judges right and wrong. Because if not, again, it's not only despair like Arthur Miller said, but people can just get away with whatever they want to do and do whatever they want to do. And if there's no God, then, then who cares? And he sums it all up by saying that if you believe in a God who doesn't judge, then clearly you've never endured suffering. If you believe in a God who doesn't judge, then clearly you've lived this comfortable suburban life where everything's always gone right and it's always been very easy and you've really never been wrong. Does that make sense? I mean, both of these brilliant men are basically saying, we better hope that there is actually a God who cares about right and wrong. We better hope that there is a God who actually judges right and wrong and good and bad. Now, what does the Bible have to say about this whole topic? What does it have to say about this discussion? Let's look really quickly at Romans chapter 14. And and my guess is that any of you in this room who've ever read much of the Bible before know that there's going to be plenty of verses that we could appeal to, but we'll just touch on a few of them. Verse 10 of Romans 14 says this, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? In other words, is it really your place to judge someone else? Um, And why do you uh, demonstrate ungodly behavior by despising your brother? He goes on to say, For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Let me let that sink in for a minute. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. You don't need to judge. That's God's territory. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. In other words, what this verse makes very clear is that there is indeed a judgment that we will all stand before God to give account of ourselves to our creator, our maker. Uh, the one who set up the standards of right and wrong, truth and falsity, goodness and badness. But the question is, what are we judged upon? Well, one of the things that we see in scriptures that we're judged upon are actions, right? That's no surprise to anybody in this room, but take a look at the screen really quickly here and we'll see another verse, a couple of verses that talk about this. The first verse is from Revelation chapter 20. It says this, then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. We're done. We're judged according to our actions. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. The theme of this passage very quickly is we will be judged. Part of the account we give of ourselves before God will be based upon what we have or have not done upon our actions. Listen to the words of Galatians chapter 5. Carries this thought further. Galatians 5 says this, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, says Paul, as I did before, that those who live like this, who continue to live like this, will not inherit the kingdom of God, right? This passage from Galatians makes two points at least here and actually more. 
And one of the points it makes is that certain actions are clearly destructive. That, that this list of actions are wrong precisely because they actually wound and hurt and undo the created order of human relationships as God intended them to be. And so, in other words, improper expressions of sexuality, that those improper expressions hurt people and destroy human uh, interaction and the human fabric of sociology as God intended it to be. They, in other words, those actions hurt people. And, and we hurt one another when we, when we engage in those interactions. And not only that, but we actually destroy the fabric of society. This passage of Scripture goes on to say that improper relationships and relational tactics now, aside from sexuality, again, hurt people and, again, destroy the fabric of humanity. In other words, what God is saying in this passage of Galatians is that the reason that certain things are wrong are, one, because they're a reflection of my character, but two, because they actually hurt people. They actually create a world in which I don't want you to live. I don't want the world to be that way. We pray for the invisible kingdom of God to become visible in Rome, Georgia, and to the ends of the earth, because God's kingdom is a kingdom where human beings actually flourish as we were created to flourish. The second thing we see in this passage is not only that these actions are destructive, but that people who continue to live in these destructive patterns will be judged accordingly, that there's a judgment that actually uh, is commensurate with these actions. Now, there's a New York Times article that came out in 2011, and in the article, the, uh, the author of the article was inter, uh, interviewing Vince Gilligan, who uh, was the writer and the producer of Breaking Bad. Now, I don't know if any of you guys have seen Breaking Bad. Here's a picture of Jesse from Breaking Bad. It's, it, it may be a miniseries or whatever you call these series. Maybe not many of you have seen it. Some of you have. But listen very quickly to, to a little section of this article um, with, again, Vince Gilligan. So I'll jump into the, 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 uh, the story from New York Times. The article says this, The hit TV show Breaking Bad follows the story of Walter White, a mild-mannered chemistry teacher who, after receiving a terminal diagnosis, turns to cooking crystal meth to provide for his family. After he develops a taste for the trade, Walt slowly turns into a bold but degenerate thug. But the show doesn't soft-pedal the consequences of sin. The show's creator, Vince Gilligan, says... If there's a larger lesson to Breaking Bad, it's that actions have consequences. I feel some sort of need for biblical atonement. Okay, here's the, this is the guy who's the the writer and producer of the show. I have some need for biblical atonement or justice or something. In one of the most memorable scenes of season four, the biblical implications of Gilligan's vision becomes clear. Walt's younger accomplice, Jesse, that was the picture we had up a minute ago, Jesse commits murder and then attends a Narcotics Anonymous meeting in hopes of finding relief. After Jesse shares a thinly veiled version of his crime, the group leader counsels self-acceptance. We're not here to sit in judgment, he says, to, to which Jesse explodes. Why not? Why not? If you just do stuff and nothing happens, what's it all mean? What's the point? So no matter what I do, hooray for me because I'm a great guy, it's all good. No matter how many dogs I kill, I just, whatever, do an inventory and accept It's not surprising that Vince Gilligan believes in hell and judgment for human sin. He says, Vince Gilligan that is, he says, I want to believe that there's a heaven, but I can't not believe that there's a hell. Does that make sense? 
Uh, in other words, here's this guy who produces and writes this really violent and gritty and icky series that delves into sort of the depths of sin and its consequences. And the writer and the producer basically says, absolutely, I believe in a God who judges. The Bible delivers the bad news that Vince Gilligan affirms that judgment is coming and that it will be based upon what we have or what we haven't done. Did I say happy Mother's Day already? Just checking. Just checking. <clears throat> Not only will this judgment be based upon what we have or haven't done, but it'll be based upon what we have said. It'll be based upon our words. Listen to Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is speaking here. Jesus says this, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, he's speaking to the Pharisees or the religious folks. That could be us today. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of your heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Now, this passage or this section of Jesus in Matthew chapter 12 makes, again, lots of different points. We'll focus on two, but one of the points is this very clearly, that we'll be judged according to the words that we've, have, we've spoken. The Bible has so much to say about lying. The Bible has so much to say about gossip and slander and hurting people's souls with our words. And Jesus here says that those destructive words will also be the basis for our judgment. This is why in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, you know, Jesus makes the statement about, about not calling your brother Raka or calling him a fool, which is essentially calling him saying, you idiot. And what he's saying is he's saying in the same way that, that that passage we talked about a minute ago that talked about the physical destruction of human sexuality or other ways in which it might manifest hurts other people and hurts the fabric of humanity. Essentially what he's saying is our words do the same thing. And, and so when we lie or when we gossip or when we slander or when we call somebody an idiot in anger, Jesus is saying, he's basically saying that's just as serious to me. That, that sin is just as serious to God, and, and actually that judgment will be based upon not only what you've done, but also what you have said. Francis Schaeffer has this great illustration, and his illustration is he basically says that when we stand before God, when we stand in judgment, that it will be as if there's been this invisible tape recorder that's been hanging around our necks all of our lives, and that all that has to happen is that God has to press play and stand back, and our words will ultimately be the very things that condemn us. Now, Jesus makes another really interesting point in this passage, and it's this. It's that our words, all they're really doing is they're revealing what's truly in our hearts, right? And so, to make this point, Jesus uses the analogy of a tree with either good fruit or bad fruit to illustrate the quality of our hearts. If our words are good and true, then they reveal a clean and a good and a pure heart. If our words are dishonest and destructive, then they reveal a heart that is rotten with sin. Some of you have seen the movie Liar, Liar with Jim Carrey. I think it came out back in the late 90s, right? But uh, Jim Carrey in this movie is a lawyer, and he is a nasty, icky lawyer who will lie and cheat and do whatever it takes to win his particular cases. And, uh, and his ex-wife knows it, and his son knows it. And on his son's birthday, his son makes a wish that all of a sudden his dad has to tell the truth just for a day. 
And the movie chronicles this uh, sort of story of Jim Carrey uh, having to live a life where he always says what his heart really thinks. And what is revealed is that Jim Carrey's words match up with his heart, right? And that his heart is selfish and it's wicked and it's evil. And the movie is frankly very hilarious. It's very, very funny. It's a great little picture. But his words uh, also eventually in the movie lead to his reformation, Right? When he understands that his words really are unpacking the reality of his heart, it actually leads to his change. Now, this sounds maybe not that convicting to some of us. Some of us know that we've said a cuss word here or there, right? Some of us know that we've gossiped here and there. We've lied here and there. But maybe we look at this and kind of go, on the, you know, the scales, you know, God's scales, maybe my good words outweigh my bad words. But I want you to know that uh, you just... You need to hear Martin Luther on this. Martin Luther says, you can't even say the Lord's Prayer without sinning. You can't even pray the Lord's Prayer without sinning. And I don't know how many of you know me very well. I'm an incredibly nice guy. 97% of what I say is nice and encouraging. And if you ask me if you like your pants, I'll say yes. And if you ask me what I think about your car, I'll say great. And if you ask me all sorts of stuff, I'll tell you everything that you want to hear, right? And you'll walk away and you'll think, that BP is such a nice guy. He encourages me. He listens to me. He tells me how great I am. And the truth is that a lot of me really believes those things I'm saying. And a lot of me really wants to build you up. But guess what? A lot of me, after 42 years of life, I've learned that uh, the best PR in the world for myself is if I simply say nice things, right? I've got a couple good buddies up in Chattanooga. And this past week, I was visiting with one of them. And we were having this very conversation and he was asking me, hey, BP, what are, what are things that you avoid? And I said, well, I avoid saying hard things to people. And he said, why do you do that? And I said, well, you know, I don't know. And, and, I, and I said, well, I guess maybe because I'm afraid of what they'd really think about me if I actually told the truth, right? If I actually spoke truth and difficulty into their life. If I said hard things, I'm afraid that they wouldn't like me anymore. And so come to find out all of my nice, encouraging, and wonderful words are actually undergirded with this extreme selfishness and this desire to protect myself from being hurt and from having people walk away from me. Does that make sense? And, and, and the point is, is that God has an amazing spiritual x-ray, and he not only sees your actions, he hears your words, but more importantly, he sees your hearts. Now, I'm going to not belabor this point too much, and I'm not going to make all the thousands of points that I could make, but what I am going to say is this, is that some of you should be feeling uncomfortable right now, right? And some of you should feel uncomfortable because you know that your actions have not always been honoring to God. And frankly, some of you know that your actions, some of your actions have been, have been evil. Some of your actions have been wicked. You know, some of you are going to be feeling uncomfortable right now because you know for a fact that your words have been filled with selfish motivation or lying or gossip or slander or the thousands of different things. And you know that both your actions and your words, all they're simply doing is they're uncovering the depths of your heart. And so some of you are feeling uncomfortable right now. And some of you are thinking, all right, my only option is to work harder. I've got, to, I've got to clean up my actions, I've got to clean up my words, and I've got to do whatever it takes to clean up my heart. I've got to work harder. Some of you think that. That's what you're thinking right now. Some of you are thinking the exact opposite. Some of you are thinking, well, if I'm judged according to what I've done, I know I've done a lot of bad stuff. 
And if I'm judged according to what I've said, I know I've said a lot of bad stuff, and there is no way that I'm going to be able to rebalance those scales, and so I might as well just give up. And again, the answer to that is despair. And, uh, and I'll tell you the truth, if you're thinking either of those things right now, then I do actually have good news for you. And the good news is this, is that you failed miserably, right, in the way that you've lived your life, in the words that you've said. Because very honestly, the Bible makes it very, very clear that God's standard by which he will evaluate you upon is perfection. And, and guess what? None of us in this room have ever been perfect. You've, always, you've already failed, right? You, you've already missed the boat, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The good news is this, however. The good news is found in Romans chapter 5. It says this, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Those of us who deserve to be judged, which, by the way, is every single one of us. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, before we got our stuff together, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath or the judgment of God? For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of son, his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. In other words, that song that we played at the very beginning that God is going to cut you down if you're a liar or a slander or a gossiper or if you've been violent or dishonest. The good news is that God, instead of cutting you down, has basically said, I'll cut my own son down on your behalf in your place. And for those of us who trust in his son, Jesus alone for our salvation, we have a God who basically said, I'll pour out my wrath on myself. I'll swallow the cup of wrath. I'll take the punishment that you deserve upon myself. That's exactly what Genesis 15 talks about. If you guys are familiar with the passage of Genesis 15, it's essentially where God makes a covenant with Abraham. And instead of God making the covenant with Abraham, God essentially says, step over to the side. I'm making this covenant with myself. And in this covenant, what I'm saying is that if you fail to keep the requirements of the, co- of the covenant, I will be the one to suffer the punishment of the demands of this covenant. Does that make sense? Again, God, instead of cutting us down as we rightfully deserve, offers to cut himself down in our place. And by the way, this action of judgment, this action of wrath, these emotions that God has... These are actually wonderful, wonderful emotions that we shouldn't feel uncomfortable with. Listen to a, a little segment of a, of a passage that I read out of a Christianity Today. Uh, again, here's essentially the, the talk, and, and in it there are a couple quotes, but just follow along with, you, with me if you will. Primarily, this is by a woman named Becky Pippert, and she says this about hell and wrath and God. She said, people ask, what kind of a loving God could be filled with wrath? But any loving person is often filled with wrath. In Hope Has Its Reasons, Becky Pippert writes, Think how we feel when someone we love is ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. Pippert then quotes E.H. Gifford, 
Human love here offers a true analogy. The more a father loves his son, the more he hates in him the drunkard, the liar, the traitor. She concludes, if I, a flawed, narcissistic, sinful woman, can feel this much pain and anger over someone's condition, how much more a morally perfect God who made them. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. In other words, far from being the, the emotional outburst of this immature, angry, wrathful God, instead God's judgment is actually the demonstration of a loving God in the same way that a loving parent is angered when their children are, are, are addicted to sin, and it's actually an act of love that God would judge evil and suffering in this world. And we need to understand that the very reason for that judgment, and even the judgment he pours out on his own son, is because he ultimately loved us enough to send his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this uncomfortable and unsettling doctrine that, uh, that you care how we live because you love us. And Father, that not only do you care how we live, but that you're a God who places a standard upon us and that you're a God who judges. But Father, we thank you most of all that for those of us who have trusted in your son Jesus, that you judged Jesus, your son, in our place. And so Father, it is in your son Jesus that we place our hope and our trust, it is in your son Jesus that we find our strength. And so, Father, we pray all of these things today in Jesus' name. Amen.